I travel a lot, and uh, this thing goes with me everywhere I go. Every, every trip, uh, it finds its way into, into my luggage. Um, it's a light. But not only is it a light, uh, as you can see, it, it actually stores things. I mean, there's stuff in here. I've got my clothesline in here. I've got some, uh, some skin cream in here. Not like beauty cream, like medical type cream. Um, and I've got, I've got a couple of batteries in here. I've got some soap in here so I can wash my clothes. Um, yeah, it's kind of cool. It's waterproof. I mean, this is a neat little gadget, a waterproof light carrying thing. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just really pretty useful. Uh, but as practical as this thing is, um, the truth is, it's, it's not universally useful. Um, I don't need it here. You guys have this thing called stable electricity. So, I mean, I don't, I don't need this. But there are places that I go in the world that don't have stable electricity. They don't have electricity at all, and therefore I need some source of light, and it's useful. Um, but I don't need it here. The only reason I brought it on this trip was for this illustration to show you. So about 30 seconds of use, but that's about the only use it has in this context in the United States. Um, now, I've noticed something that when we give gifts, there are at least two things that we want to be true of the gifts that we give. We want them to be enjoyed, right? And we want them to be useful to the people that we give them to. Which raises the question, if you were to give a gift that would be suitable for the whole world, anywhere, at any time, what would you give? Now, remember, the gift that you give to be enjoyed and to be useful would have to be something that would be appropriate in any culture, anywhere in the world. So, what would it be? Well, several possibilities emerge. We'll see if this works. It may or may not work. All right. It's not working, so... Ah, did I do that or did you do that? Uh, you did it. Okay. Well, you keep doing it, and I'll, I'll let you know when to do it. Some people might say, well, I think books would be a good gift to give anywhere in the world. Uh, and that sounds pretty good on the surface at first pass, but the reality is there are more than one billion illiterate adults on our planet. That's 26% of the world's population that can't read. So this guy is probably not going to find a great deal of benefit if you dumped a bunch of books on him. You say, well, okay, if it's not going to be books, then everybody's got to eat, so how about food? Food sounds pretty good. Everybody has to eat. The problem is that different people not only eat from different food groups, um, there are people in different cultures that eat different things. You know, I mean, you say, well, Jim, that looks like a plate of bugs. That is exactly what that is, a plate of bugs. Uh, and there are places in the world where that's a delicacy. Thank God he has not called me to a place where bugs are a delicacy. There are, there are places where people eat bugs, and then, you know, next picture, uh, you could get yourself a, a plate of snake. I've actually eaten snake. It's not too bad. Not too bad, but, eh, not my cup of tea. If you were to, if you were to take food, the question that you'd have to ask yourself is, what kind of food would I take? So food wouldn't necessarily be an appropriate gift for any culture. Okay, if it's not books, if it's not food, how about clothes? Maybe, 
But you do realize that there are cultures, thank God he hadn't called me to this kind of culture either, <laughs> that there are cultures where people don't wear clothes at all. So giving clothes it would not necessarily be an appropriate gift. And, and different cultures, you know, have different cultural taste in terms of what they wear. And, uh, you know, this is, I don't know what Michelin girl and accordion boy you know, are trying to prove, but, you know, clothes might not be the best idea for them. All right, it's not going to be food, it's not going to be books, it's not going to be clothes. What about money? Money? Is that going to be, everybody's got to, you know, do some kind of exchange system. Well, the reality is, you know, there are different cultures use different money. Not everybody uses the dollar. You can't use the dollar in Russia, for instance, and you can't use rubies or rubles to buy anything in Nicaragua. And there are cultures that don't use money at all. They use the barter system. You give me some seeds, I'll give you some fish. So if you dumped a bunch of coins or a bunch of bills on some cultures, wouldn't mean anything to them. It wouldn't be culturally appropriate at all. So what kind of gift would you give that would be appropriate for any culture, any time, anywhere in the world? And I want to suggest that the gift that is universally needed is truth. Truth. Truth doesn't change with nationality. Truth doesn't change with language. Truth doesn't change with culture. Truth doesn't change with time. The truth is the truth. And people need to hear the truth. Everywhere. All the time. But you, you do realize, I, I know you do, you've, you've been paying attention to what's been going on in our culture. You, you realize that the truth as a concept is under attack within our culture. The truth has fallen on hard times in our culture. Here's what Ted Koppel said uh, some years ago. I think he's right on target. In the place of truth, we have discovered facts. For moral absolutes, we have substituted moral ambiguity. We now communicate with everyone and say absolutely nothing. We have reconstructed the Tower of Babel, and it is a television antenna. <laughs> Pretty spot on, isn't he? Unfortunately, our culture has lost touch with the very concept of truth. And there is more information at our fingertips now than we've ever had in the history of our planet. But has it helped us? Culturally? Sociologically? Has it helped us improve? Eh, it's given us a few creature comforts here and there. But folks, I don't know if you've read a newspaper recently. The world is sick. And a lot of data and a lot of information doesn't seem to be helping the infirmity of the world. Just more information and more technology and more gadgets may fill our heads with facts, but it's not helping us get along with one another. It's not helping us resolve our international problems, our national problems. Truth as a concept is under assault. In our, in our culture, in our country, from California to Connecticut, but beyond our borders all the way to Calcutta. And truth was under full assault in the city of Colossae. False teachers had, had found their way through the Lycus Valley and they had settled in the small town of Colossae and they were challenging the truth about Jesus Christ. They were saying that Jesus really wasn't all that special. He wasn't God. 
and he certainly wasn't sufficient. Colossians, the book of Colossians, written by the hand of Paul, the book of Colossians confronts the lies and the errors of the false teachers who were trying to confuse the Colossian believers and draw them away from full devotion and total allegiance to Jesus Christ. But what I find interesting in the book of Colossians is that even though it's a book that is all about confronting the error and the false teaching and the bad doctrine of the false teachers, is that Paul does not begin the book with an assault and an attack on the false teachers. He'll get there. But what Paul does in the first section of the book is talk about the gospel and the positive effects that the gospel has had in the Colossian believers and in all the world. And basically what he's doing is this. I think it's brilliant on his part. It's kind of foolish for me to say something's brilliant on the part of the Apostle Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit. But, you know, me looking at it, I go, wow, Paul and the Holy Spirit, they... (laughs) What he does is he establishes up front the truth and the reality of the power of the gospel, and he says, folks, don't abandon this for that. Stay with this, because the gospel has taken root and it's growing and it's transforming your lives, but not only among you, it's transforming lives all over the world. Stay with this. Let's read what he says in Colossians 1, 3 through 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Truth, gospel truth, is what is universally appropriate and universally needed. And Paul reminds the Colossians in in these six verses of at least two important principles. He reminds the Colossian believers and he reminds us of at least two important concepts. And the first is this. The gospel is unchanging truth. The gospel is unchanging truth. Now it seems to me that Paul is very intent that his readers understand that the gospel is truth because he mentions it twice. Notice what he says at the end of verse 5. You've already heard about this word of truth. What? The gospel. It's the word of truth. At the end of verse 6, you understood God's grace in all its what? Truth. Two times Paul says the gospel is truth. The false teachers were telling lies, and Paul wants us to know that the gospel is the truth. Now, What about the gospel truth? What is it that we can say about the gospel truth? Well, first, I would suggest that we need to understand that the gospel truth is good news. It's good news. Now, you you guys already know this. You know that the term gospel, or in Greek, euangelion, you know that the term gospel literally means good news or good message. That's what the term itself means. Good news. Good message. It's the best news. It's the best message. It's a better message than Greg got a job. 
good for Greg and his family that he got a job. I mean, that's good news, but the gospel is better news than that. It's a better message than Jackie's pregnant. Good for Jackie and good for Scott, friends of mine, that Jackie's pregnant. But the gospel is better news than Greg got a job or Jackie's pregnant. The gospel is the good news that God has solved our sin problem through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. See, we have a sin problem. We're all sinners. And because we're sinners, we sin. I'm guilty before a holy God. And, and I can't do anything about it. But there's someone who did. God took the first step and he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. God has solved our sin problem through what Jesus did on the cross. That is the gospel. I don't know if you can have a better message than that. That is good news. What is the gospel? It's good news that God has solved for us what we couldn't solve for ourselves. The gospel is not the bad news of condemnation. The gospel is the good news of salvation. It's good news. And it's all grace. It's all grace. If there's one word, if you could just take, say, okay, sum up the gospel in one word, I think it's got to be grace. And I want you to notice what, what Paul does. He, he, he links, in, in, in verse 6, he links grace and truth. Notice, notice what it says here. Since the day you heard it, the gospel, and understood God's grace in all its, what? Truth. What is the gospel? It's grace and truth. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I've met people who are full of truth, but they don't have grace. Anybody met any people like that? I mean, they got all the answers. They'll beat you up with the truth. They'll stab you with the truth, and then after you're bleeding, they'll take a Bible and beat you over the head with it. I mean, they, they got truth. You just, you just stand there and let me give you some truth. There's, here, there's your truth dose. But there's no grace. No grace whatsoever. Of course, I've known people on the other side of that too, and you have too, haven't you? People who are full of truth, or, or grace, full of grace, but no truth. Let's just all get along and just be nice to one another. Why can't we just, just love one another? But there's no truth. How many of you have known people like that, that they just want to be nice and soft and sappy, but there's, there's no substance, there's, there's nothing solid, there's no truth. The gospel is what? Grace and truth. And it's interesting that Paul puts them together in the same way that John put them together. Remember in John chapter 1 and verse 17 where it says, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Was Jesus full of truth? Ask the Pharisees. He was pretty blunt with them. Did Jesus have grace? Oh my gosh. He reached out and touched the untouchable. Jesus was full of grace and truth. The gospel is both grace and it's truth. It's, it, it's truth, yes, but it's grace. What does that mean? What does grace mean? You know what grace means? It means undeserved kindness, unmerited favor. It's the favor of God poured out on us when we don't deserve it, when I can't do anything to earn it. 
It's God saying, here's my goodness, but I don't deserve it. Here's my goodness. You can't earn it. You'll never deserve it. There's nothing you can do as hard as you try. You'll, you'll never reach the goal. But here's my goodness. Here's my favor. Here's pardon. Here's forgiveness. Here's life. Not because you earn it, because you can't. I, I told the first service, I, I, I work and minister now in, in Latin America, and there's a problem in Latin America. This grace thing for them is hard to swallow. It doesn't go down easy. There's a problem in Latin America. It's called legalism and moralism. And, and this is a country that's, that's been saturated and enculturated with, with legalism from, from a variety of, of, of sources. So when you talk to them about grace and, and, and you tell them salvation is a free gift of God, all you have to do is trust Christ. You, can't, you don't bring anything to the table. You can't work at it. You can't gain your salvation. They'll shake their heads and, and, and you know, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. The problem is they firmly believe because of their enculturation with legalism and moralism that they have to do something, that they have to earn it, that it can't be that simple. It can't be that, that grace-filled. And it's hard to get through to people who live in, in this prison of moralism that they won't accept grace. Now, we in the United States, on the other hand, <laughs> we, we, we've graduated past moralism and legalism. We don't struggle with moralism and legalism. But grace doesn't go down any easier for us in our culture either. You know what? We've got another problem. Our problem is called old-school American can-do-it individualism. Yes, I can. Anybody post-40, is that not the culture you've grown up in? Yes, we can. We're Americans. We're capable. I don't need anybody's help. I, I can get it done. Yes or no? So when you come along with a message of grace that says, to a culture that says, yes, we can, God says, no, you can't. You never will. Why? Because it's grace. The gospel is about grace. Isn't that good news? <laughs> I don't have to work at it. I don't have to sweat and cry. I have to humble myself. Oh my gosh, that's hard, isn't it? Mm. Anybody struggle with that? I have to humble myself and say, God, I can't. Thank you for Jesus. It's a gift. The gospel is unchanging truth. It's good news. It's all about grace. Secondly, the gospel is not only unchanging truth. The gospel is undiminished power. Undiminished power. This is a pretty neat little gadget. But I've noticed something. Turn it on and let it run. After a couple of days, I got to recharge this thing. You know why? Because it's lost its power. The battery inside this thing loses power over time. And I got to recharge it. 
this, this little gizmo here, when I was a teenager, the stuff that you can do with this thing now that I hold in my hand was science fiction. How many people my age, or maybe even 20 years younger, would have ever dreamed you could make a telephone call without wires? How many of you believe... Bill Widener's calling me. Bill, Bill? No, seriously. It said, it said Bill Widener. You did, you did that on purpose, man. That ain't right. That ain't right. Is that right? Man, call me in the middle of my sermon. I'm like, what? Who? It's on, bro. That was good. That was good. I got to give you that. That was good. good. But you know what? I got to charge this every day. It It loses power. About a year ago, I woke up one morning and my body was just doing twitches and it was out of control and found out I need a pacemaker. So I had a pacemaker installed. You want to see? (laughs) You know, they told me when I went and had my first checkup after this pacemaker that the battery inside this pacemaker lasts for 11 years. That is amazing. 11 years, which, you know, I thought, if you can build a battery to last 11 years, how come I got to charge this every day? (laughs) But even with the great technology of an 11-year battery, in 11 years, when I'll be 37... You know, I've, I've got to go in and get another battery because this battery's going to lose its power. Folks, the gospel never loses its power. It never loses its power. It's undiminished power. The analogy that, that, that Paul uses here in verse 6 is that the gospel is like a seed... He says, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. It's like a seed that you plant anywhere, and it grows. It takes root, and it it flourishes, and it bears fruit. And it grows in any soil anywhere in the world. I've seen it. I've seen it grow in, in the red clay of Alabama. I've seen it grow in the frozen tundra of Alaska. It doesn't matter. It it grows in in the soil of the United States. It grows in Costa Rica. It grows in Nicaragua. It grows wherever you plant it. And that's precisely what Paul is telling us in verse 6. This gospel seed that has undiminished power has grown in you It's bearing fruit, and it's growing in you, but it's bearing fruit where? All over the world. (laughs) The power of the gospel is not hindered by geographical boundaries. It's undiminished power. And it grows just as powerfully and just as strongly in 2018 as it did in AD 60. The gospel has not lost its power. It's way stronger than my 11-year pacemaker. The power of the gospel has endured for millennia. Jesucristo se murió para los pecadores y por medio de confiar en Él encontramos el perdón y la vida eterna. See, in any language, in any language, the gospel message is the same. Jesus Christ died for sinners 
And by placing our confidence in him, we find forgiveness and eternal life. It's the same in Spanish as it is in English. It doesn't matter what language. It's an unchanging truth, and it's needed everywhere. The gospel has undiminished power. It is not diminished by time. It is not diminished by space. What kind of power? What kind of power does the gospel have? Power to transform lives. Like the life of the man you're listening to at this moment. If you only could have seen There's, there are people here who saw me from my 30s on. Oh, my God. If you could have seen me in my pre-20s. See, the gospel came to a rebellious, arrogant teenager on his way to absolutely nowhere. And that selfish, rebellious teenager finally woke up one day and allowed the gospel to transform rebellion into submission and aimlessness into purpose. That's what the gospel did for me. Absolutely transformed my life. Transformed the life of the man whose words we're reading right now. Remember him? Saul? (laughs) A Christian hater, an angry, zealous Christian hater? On his way to Damascus one day? When Jesus knocked him to the ground? And Saul got up, a radically transformed man? And now Paul travels around the world writing letters, planting churches, and encouraging Christians rather than killing them. Transformation? I'd say so. The gospel has the power to transform lives. It did it for Paul in the first century. It did it for me in the 20th century. And it can do it for you in the 21st century. See, the gospel has not lost its power. It's undiminished power. And the gospel seems to be the truth that God always colors outside the lines. You notice that? God uses the strangest people and the strangest strategies at times in order to accomplish his purposes. I don't, know if you've, I don't know if you've observed this in your reading of the Bible or in your own personal life, but God is not traditional. And he's not necessarily comfortable. He doesn't follow convention. At times, he calls people to get outside their comfort zone. Remember when God called Abraham? Genesis chapter 12. I want you to leave your country, your father, and your family to go to a place I'll show you. Where might that be? Well, it's the place I'll show you. Could we go back to that? Because the place I'll show you seems to me to be a little undefined and nonspecific. Leave everything and go to the place I'll show you. Where, Where is that again? You'll know when you get there. 
You know, I don't know, but to me that sounds a lot like risk. Sometimes God calls us out of our comfort zones. Remember the bunch of guys that Jesus called to advance the gospel? Remember that crew he called? Fishermen and tax collectors. All right, so you're putting together a team. You want them to be the the guys that are going to go out into the world and people are going to listen to them because they're attracted to them. So let's choose the lowest on the economic scale, the most marginalized people possible, and the people who are hated by the culture. Good plan? That's what Jesus did. You understand what I'm saying? God is not traditional. He's not conventional. He does things his way, not our way. He colors outside the lines. Just like he colored outside the lines when he called Paul to spread the gospel. Come on, Paul, he was killing Christians. And now this guy's going to be the one to encourage Christians and plant Christian churches? Mm. My head hurts thinking about the implications of all of that. And God continues to color outside the lines. He's colored outside the lines in the ministry that I lead, Ebok. Let me just show you a few pictures and catch you up on what God's been doing. This is a this is a Bible Institute in Masatepe, Nicaragua. This is my, my friend, Manrique Salazar, who's a Costa Rican pastor who's teaching this group of Nicaraguans. By the way, Nicaraguans and Costa Ricans are like... So here we've got a Costa Rican teaching 200 Nicaraguans. And I know Manrique's story. He's a martial arts guy. Angry guy. He'd hurt you bad. But now because of the gospel, he'll help you good. <laughs> Another picture. This is a group of pastors in Costa Rica meeting at a pastoral retreat center. See, the gospel seed grows in Central Nicaragua, and it grows in South Costa Rica. Next picture. This is in Nicaragua. This is on the northern coast of Nicaragua in a city called Puerto Cabezas. This is a totally different people group. Yeah, they're from Nicaragua. They're Nicaraguans, but they're from a people group called the Mosquito people. And the gospel seed grows among Costa Ricans, Nicaraguans. It also grows among the mosquito. Next picture. This is where Ron was. Ron, yesterday, as of yesterday, was in that room in Cerro Miel, Panama. They do have electricity, but most of the people who live in this tribe of, of Panamanian Indians, Nobe Indians, don't have electricity. I, I got to tell you about the shower they have there. They told me, it's, it's up on the hill. First day, I didn't want to take a shower, so I always carried, like, wipes, you know, to swab myself down. But, you know, I, after a while, you, you just got to get wet. So I go up to the shower, which is right next to the, to the bathroom where people just come in and they go to the, I mean, to the outhouse. And they've just tacked the shower on to the outhouse with three walls. All right, think about three walls. One wall, there's nothing. It's just you and all of nature and whoever happens to be there. That was a very quick shower on my part. <laughs> 
you know what? The gospel is growing among the Nobe Indians in Panama, where they have three wall showers. Final picture. Here's, here's a picture of our Bible Institute in San Jose, Costa Rica, which we have to do at night because this group of people, that's doctors and lawyers. So we have to do it at night so that these guys can get off of work. There aren't any doctors and lawyers up in the mountains in Panama. But the gospel of Jesus Christ grows among Nobe Indians, but guess what? It grows among doctors and lawyers and professional people in San Jose, Costa Rica. The gospel is undiminished power. It works anywhere you plant it. God's done some amazing stuff through this church here in spreading the gospel and equipping pastors in Nicaragua. You guys have had an impact in Chinandega, in Potosi. Brent has been to Panama. Is the water cold in the showers up there, Brent? Does the gospel grow up yonder? Just like it grows here? See, the gospel changes lives, transforms lives, just as much there as it does here, and just as much here as it does there. It's unchanging truth. It's undiminished power. This is where my wife Melanie works. That's looking out the front door of her ministry center onto the community. How many of you ladies have already been there? Some of you are on the way there. That, I, I didn't, I just found, that's a normal picture, right? I mean, I didn't go and hunt and find some nasty looking picture. That's just, that's reality. That's home. But the gospel grows in Guarari just like it grows everywhere else. And if we color outside the lines, it's only because we serve a God who colors outside the lines. He always has. He always has. Doesn't Corinthians say that he chooses the weak and foolish of the world, not the mighty and the noble, in order to accomplish his purposes? How many, how many of you are encouraged by that? That God chooses the weak and the foolish, not the mighty and the noble. I've never been mighty, and the chances of me ever being noble are pretty slim. Weak and foolish, guilty. But you know what? One day, I just said, okay, I'll go. I'll try. And God confounds the wise and the powerful through the obedience of the weak and the foolish. See, that's God coloring outside the lines. When God decided to start a nation, who did he pick? Who did he start with? All right, let's see. We need a nation, because I made a promise that I'm going to build a nation out of that guy. Let me see. Who are we going to pick to start a nation? Because if you're going to have a nation, you need descendants. You need people. Let's start with a really old guy. And to this really old guy, we're going to add, let's see, a really old sterile woman. That's my starting point. Old man... Sterile woman. If you would have sat down at the drawing board, how many of you would have been old man, sterile woman? Raise your hand, because that just makes total sense, right? Why does God do that? Why does God choose an old man and a sterile woman 
and a Jim Wilson and a you to do his work so that he gets the glory. So that nobody can ever look at it and say, but look at all the skills and capacities that guy had. No, it's like God did that. God did that. See, God colors outside the lines. He still uses ordinary people like me. And ordinary people like Brent. <laughs> Brent! There's like ordinary and then there's, you know. And he knows I love him. And you guys know I love him. But Brent doesn't have all the educational pedigree to say, yeah, I'm going to be a missionary. But that man has been effective. Effective. In Nicaragua, in Costa Rica, in Panama, in Africa. Why? Because Brent be all that? No, because God is great. And the power of the gospel in the hands of a God who colors outside the lines, there are no limits. God still chooses Brent and Dwight and Clay and Jim and Eric and John and Marsha and Amanda and Nate and Alicia. All normal people who have just stepped over the line of convention and comfort and said, I'll go. I have no idea what I'm going to do. I have no idea what I'm doing. But here I am. Here I am. I, if you'll use me, I'll do something. And then just step back. And watch what God can do. You just step out. Just like Jesus stepped out and went on a mission trip. He left the comforts of glory to go to the land of brokenness and rebellion and hopelessness, and he did it not because it was easy, but because it was necessary. God is a master artist who not only colors outside the lines, he does the most amazing things with color. You ever notice what God can do with color? He starts with a deep, dark black of our sin. And then he takes a cross for a brush. And he dips it in the deep red color of blood. And he smears that red all over the black of our sin. And somehow the combination of red on black transforms into the brilliant white of forgiveness. <laughs> Only God can mix red on black and come out with white. He's an amazing artist. I think he'd probably like to paint something with your life if you'd give him a chance. A gift that works anywhere in the world, absolutely anywhere, the gospel truth. God's gift to the world is the gospel truth. It's been given to you, and now it's your time to give. Colossae was just a small little backwater town. Nobody ever paid attention to Colossae. It was nothing compared to Rome or even Jerusalem. Just a small town. Kind of like Jacksonville. 
in the looming shadow of Tyler and the bigger shadow of Dallas. And even though it was a small town, Colossae didn't often attract the big names and the big events. There were some, there were some moments in the history of Colossae that were pretty significant moments. But what was the most significant day in the history of Colossae? Was it the day when Xerxes, we go to the next slide, when Xerxes stopped into the city on his march against Greece? I mean, that was a pretty big day. King Xerxes stopped in our city. Was that the most significant day in the history of Colossae? No. Maybe it was the day when King Cyrus and his Greek army marched through the city on their way to war against Babylon. That's a big deal. King Cyrus stopped in our city. No. The most significant day in the history of Colossae was when a man named Epaphras just came to town and planted the seed of the gospel. See, verses 7 and 8 of Colossians 1 says this, you learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved co-worker. Epaphras was the one who came to Colossae and he just planted a seed. You know what, I'm going to guess that when, when Epaphras came to town to plant the seed of the gospel, that there weren't any banners flying, there weren't any trumpets blowing. It was just a guy who came to town to share the good news. But because Epaphras planted the seed of the gospel, eternal destinies were changed. Lives were transformed because Epaphras told the truth. And that's always been God's plan. People tell people the truth. God's gift to the world is the gospel truth. It's been given to you. Now it's your time to give. Maybe you can be Epaphras for your neighborhood. Maybe you can be an Epaphras for your school. Maybe you can be an Epaphras for your office or your company. Maybe you can be an Epaphras for some city in the world somewhere. God's gift to the world? The gospel truth. It's been given to you. Now it's your time to give it to others.